morning, church. I invite you to take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 11 this morning. Mark chapter 11. I don't know if you feel this sometimes, but there's just this surreal nature to the time in which we're living in, and we all feel it. We feel it with the uh, wearing mask in our church sanctuary. Uh, this morning I was baptizing. It's the first baptism I've had the privilege to do, and I was wearing a mask. The person I was baptizing was wearing a mask, and I, I, there, there's this uniqueness to this moment that if, you know, if I was able to just go back six months ago and just see a snapshot of the headlines, see a snapshot of what uh, we were living through, there would just be, I wouldn't be able to comprehend it. There's a surreal nature to it, which I think is one of the reasons it's so vital that we gather to worship. It's so vital that we're able to worship at home via the live stream, just to be able to say, hey, there is a lot of change. Change is in the air. There's a lot that we do not have control over now. But I tell you, this morning I woke up, and there's one thing that I know for sure did not change, and that was that God is still on his throne. He is unmovable, unshakable. He is a God that is still sovereign, still in control, he is a God that desires to have a relationship personally with you and me, and he reveals that to us in and through his word. He, he reveals to us that he sent his son to transform once and for all how we could be in a relationship with him, and we see that supremely described in two vivid encounters, the, the, the Sunday after, excuse me, the Monday after Palm Sunday in Mark chapter 11. There, there are two episodes here that I want us to, to see and to feel this morning, and one is when Jesus curses the fig tree, and I want you to see how that is connected to the cleansing of the temple in Mark chapter 11. Read with me this morning, starting in verse 12 of Mark 11. On the following day, so let's just pause there, remind ourselves, what are we following? So Mark chapter 11, Jesus comes riding on a colt into Jerusalem. The pilgrims that have gathered together all across the, the, the land, they come into Jerusalem. And in this moment, they, they take up uh, leafy branches. They're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus comes in a colt. It's the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. He is saying, I am coming as the long-awaited Messiah. And the pilgrims of that day, they recognize Jesus for who he is. They celebrate him for who he is. They, they shout with joyful acclamation. They're saying, Hosanna, save us. You are the Messiah. The day after that is where we pick up in our story here. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. So Jesus, on the night of Palm Sunday, he had gone to the temple but didn't go into the temple, went back to Bethany. So the following day, he comes from Bethany. He's hungry. Verse 13, seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, what is it? The fig tree. 
So Jesus is talking to the fig tree in this moment, and he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. So to summarize what Jesus has just done is, he has come into Jerusalem, he's on the way to the temple, and he sees a fig tree, a fig tree that he ultimately curses because it does not have ripe fruit. It has leaves, but not ripened fruit to eat from. Now, what in the world is going on with this passage? You know, this is a passage, really, that has stupefied readers of Scripture. There was a philosopher about 100 years ago that was a British philosopher by the name of Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was sort of an ardent atheist, and he pointed to this very passage as one of the passages that he just could not overcome. It just did not make sense to him, so he uh, used it as a passage that said here is a reason that Christianity is unstable to place your faith in. William Barclay, William Barclay was a uh, hundred years ago, was a very famous biblical commentator, and when he comes to this passage, he says this about it, this story does not seem worthy of Jesus, there seems to be a petulance in it. There have been a lot of hesitations to know what in the world is going on with this passage here, and I think we, we can easily miss the forest for the fig tree. We can easily misunderstand what is occurring in this passage by not seeing how it connects to a larger story that has come before it. When you read in the Old Testament, one of the things that you discover is that this image of a fig tree is oftentimes used to describe the nation of Israel, the people of God, the chosen people. So when you're reading through scripture, you get to Jeremiah chapter 8. There, Jesus, not Jesus, but the Old Testament writer Jeremiah utilizes this fig tree imagery in verse 29. He does that of chapter 8 in Hosea chapter 9 and Joel chapter 1 and Micah chapter 7. So there would have been the disciples of Jesus who observe what Jesus is doing would be able to say, okay, there's something larger going on here. Jesus is in a bad mood. He's not just hungry and frustrated. He understands that fig trees in that first century Palestinian world, they would leave, leaves would uh, sprout on them, uh, oftentimes late spring, and the figs would not grow end of July to maybe the beginning of uh, August there. So there was always a separation between the leaves coming on the tree and actually ripe fruit to eat from the tree. And so what Jesus is saying is, is that this fig tree is ultimately a symbol of what Israel is. He's going to go cleanse the temple in just a second. So you've got to see these stories connecting. The fig tree is a symbol for the temple that is leafy but no fruit. There's activity, there's busyness, but ultimately there isn't the fruit of righteousness. There isn't the fruit of true spiritual growth that is coming from the people of God, the religious leaders of the day, and ultimately the temple, the very place where God's presence was supposed to be and where God's people could come and worship him. There was activity, but there was an intimacy. It was a representation of this very fig tree here. Now, you say, well, how does that connect to my life? Well, it does in, in many ways. It, it could connect to our life corporately because churches at times can be all leaves and no fruit. Well, this can happen. 
the leaves of activity, the leaves of people in pews, the leaves of programs and buildings, but when you get closer to it, there isn't the fruit of righteousness, there isn't the fruit of the gospel, there isn't the fruit of repentance, there isn't the fruit of a fidelity to Scripture, all leaves and no fruit. That can happen corporately. It can happen personally. It it can happen to those who are here, to those who are watching, to me. It can happen to all of us where there is activity in the name of Jesus, but there is an intimacy with Jesus. Jesus utilizes this imagery of fruit in his ministry to talk about the the very intimate connection that we have with him. You remember in John chapter 15, verse 5? I, Jesus says, am the vine, you, me, you, we, we are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him will bear much, say it with me, bear much what? Fruit. The NIV version says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so what Jesus is saying as he curses this fig tree, it becomes an object lesson, becomes a parable for the nation of Israel, but it also becomes a parable for you and for me. Leaves but no fruit. Activity, the name of Jesus, without intimacy with Jesus, and without that intimate relationship with Jesus, we do not bear fruit that our world so desperately needs. We lived in a world that is malnourished. We live in a world that is hungry and they're feasting on so much that will never satisfy. What does our world need now from the church? What does our world need now from Christians? Does our world really need for Christians in this moment, a moment of division and dissension, a moment of confusion and clamoring noise and noise and noise, noise of opinions, noises of of conspiracy theories, noise of confusion. Does our world really need Christians to add to the noise? The answer is no. You know what our world needs? Our world needs Christians to bear fruit. Fruit in our neighborhoods, fruit in our workplace, fruit in what God has called us to for such a time as this. Do you know what our world is lacking now? Here here are the description. Here, the description of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Anybody here this morning that says, hey, I tell you, if I, if I have one word, one word to describe our world, it is a gentle world. We're living in such a patient time. Now, nobody's going to say that. That's why you, that's why me, that's why we as the body of Christ, we so desperately in the places that God has called us, we are countercultural when we live in a deep abiding relationship with him and the fruit of the spirit shines forth in an impatient world and there's patience that shines forth. Not because you're a really, really good person, but Christ lives in you. The hope of glory inside of you shining forth emanating to a world that longs to see a difference between the church and the world, Christians and non-Christians. 
I'm just thinking of that Beatles song. 1960s, all, all you need is love. All you need is love. Now, it, it is so trite and it's so cliche-ish, but in a time where there's such division, what powerful witness it is when Christians in an intimate relationship with him are overflowing with Christ in us and showing forth love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. It is an antidote to the hate of this world. It is an antidote to the evil of this world. It is a powerful tonic to be able to give us hope in the midst of this spiritually disastrous age that we're living in right now that is so full of division and dissension. And that is from Satan himself. And so we shine forth knowing that God could have, he could have in his providence allowed us to live anywhere at any time in human history. But providentially, he has given us the privilege to live in these days. And it is a privilege. Why? Because we get to shine for him in a dark moment. Jesus produces a changed life when we're in relationship with him. But also, as we think about how this fig tree connects to the temple, again, be reminded, all leaves, no fruit. Jesus continues to show us that a relationship with him, it provides access to God's saving work. Again, I told you, it's an object lesson here. So the fig tree becomes the symbol for what Jesus is going to do in the temple. So if you've ever said, I I don't really understand What's occurring in the temple? Well, go back to the fig tree. Help that interpret what he's going to do. We read about it in verse 15, going to verse 18. They came to Jerusalem. He and the disciples. He entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them. And saying to them, is it not written? So he's quoting Isaiah 56. He's quoting prophet Jeremiah. Combines them together. My house shall not be, or my house shall be, excuse me, called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes, they heard it and were seeking a way to, and do you see that in your copy of God's word? A way to destroy him to kill him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching there's sort of this casual glance of jesus sort of floats around in 2020 that jesus was just really 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 nice guy and how could really really nice jesus be crucified and you need to understand that the crux of why jesus was crucified is held right here in the opposition that his earthly ministry brings to the forefront when Jesus comes into the temple, when he overturns the tables. He is saying to all of the religious establishment of the day, to the high priest, to the scribes, he is saying that ultimately I am coming to bring an end to this and I will be the new temple. 
I am ultimately coming to overthrow all that you hold dear. This is a complete threat. It's no wonder that the high priests and the scribes they gather together and they say, we've got to, we've got to kill this guy. He threatens their livelihood. He threatens all that they hold dear because he is ultimately coming to say that all of this is all leaves and no fruit. Now, you've got to understand where Jesus does this. Now, Mark doesn't tell us this in the sense, he doesn't say specifically this is where it happens, but he gives us the details of where Jesus is turning over the tables. So we know historically there was a name for that. In the temple, that was called the Court of the Gentiles. So think about the temple, even if you can't envision this, think of the temple as a funnel. It's this wide funnel that you go into, and the widest part is going to be the Court of the Gentiles. In this place, this is the only part of the temple that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, could enter into. It's the only place that they can pray at the temple. It's the only place that they can worship at the temple. It's the largest section. It's the gateway to the rest. It's the center of commerce. Josephus was an ancient Jewish historian. He said that in one week at Passover, there's 255,000 lambs that were slaughtered at the court of the Gentiles. So they're bought there. They're slaughtered there. People are coming in that first century world. They don't all live in Jerusalem. So they're coming from miles and miles and miles and miles away as they're Passover pilgrims. So they can't bring their sacrifices with them. So they go into the temple, the court of the Gentiles, and there are all of these stalls of animals, pigeons, lambs. There are all of these uh, spices that you could buy for sin sacrifices. And there is a tremendous extortion that is occurring there. The high priests and the family, they've racketed up the prices to be able to take advantage of the people in that moment. And Jesus comes and he condemns, no doubt, the commercialization of the temple. But more than that, he is saying, you have made the one place this is the one place that the Gentiles were able to come to pray, to come to worship, and you've made it an obstruction to their worship. Can you imagine how hectic and busy and active and distracting this place? That's why he quotes Isaiah chapter 56. The temple's supposed to be a house of prayer. Could you imagine trying to pray where all of this was going on? So Jesus turns over the table to say, once and for all, access to God is available to a Jewish person, but also to a Gentile. And any distraction, any obstruction needs to go to the wayside to be able to exalt God right here. This is intended to be a place of prayer for all the nations. There was this belief in the first century world that the Messiah was going to come. I mean, they were longing for this. They were looking forward to this. And, and the popular thought was, when the Messiah comes, guess what he's going to do? He is going to rid the temple of all the Gentiles. He's going to kick them all out. And you see what Jesus does? He does the opposite. He comes into the temple, and he is saying, we need to make a way for more of the Gentiles to be able to come and to worship him in this very place where you're taking advantage of them. He flips their narrative completely by saying there's got to be a way. There's got to be access to God in this place. One of the things about the 
turning over the tables in the temple, is you cannot really read this passage without understanding what is going to occur on the cross. Just a few days later, Jesus is going to hang on this cruel, coarse Roman cross. And when he shouts out, it is finished on the cross, what simultaneously occurs is there's this huge curtain between the Holy of the Holies in the temple and the court of Israel in the temple, and it tears in half, symbolically saying that now forevermore there are no barriers to one coming into the Holy of Holies, into a relationship with God. What Jesus is saying in his death is, I'm the way. I'm the access. I'm the path. You sinful human want to be in relationship with the holy God? There's only one way to do it. Not through your goodness, because you can't be good enough. Not through your religious doing, because we are sinners. We need a Savior. We need a path. And guess what? Him turning over the tables, him being crucified just days later, is his testimony once and for all. I am the path. I am the way. This time last year, we, uh, my family and another family, Robert's family from the church, we, we went to Atlanta to see the Braves play the White Sox in the new Braves Stadium. Oh, it was a great stadium. It's a fun place to be. Uh, we were there. We were with the Roberts family. Andy used to be a minor league umpire, college baseball player. He had responsibility when all the umpires would be trained. He was one of the trainers for, for their training system. So he's got all these connections, and so we were really grateful. We had great seats and sitting with them, and he's texting somebody, and he said, I want to try something here. I, I know, uh, he said, the clubhouse manager for the Braves. So I'm going to see if I can get us uh, sort of behind the scenes. The boys start getting sort of excited about that. After the game ends, we go to this elevator, sort of the clubhouse elevator. They have a security guard there. So Andy and our families, I mean, there's like nine of us, they show up, and the security guard says, I'm sorry, I can't let you any further here. He goes, well, I'm with Sammy. Security guard gets on the walkie-talkie, and Sammy clears us. We go down to the locker rooms. Another security guard there. Sir, you can't go any further here. And he goes, oh, I'm with Sammy here. Gets on the walkie-talkie. Sammy says, yes, so we are able to go on the outside of the locker rooms of all the teams there. The White Sox players are coming out. Tim Anderson, shortstop for the White Sox, comes out. We get his autograph, get to talk to him. Really cool moment. Get to take a picture with him. And he goes, I'm going to do one more thing here. So there was a concert at the end of the game, and so we go through this uh, corridor that takes us up onto the field, and the concert is going, and again, we're met by all these security guards, and they say, I'm sorry, you can't go any further. He goes, no, I'm here with Sammy. They get on the walkie-talkie, and they're like, yeah, Sammy lets you on. So we get on the field, go into the dugouts, and it's a really, really fun night. But we got to go to places there, there were a whole lot of hindrances and obstacles, but because we knew somebody who paved a way for us to go to places that we could not normally go. And here it is for you, here it is for me. Every one of us will come to a moment in our life that we will stand before the judgment of a holy God. 
And there is going to be a question that is asked of all of us. By what standard should you be let in to this place? A place of my eternal presence. A place of eternal healing. A place where there are no more tears, no more sickness. We'll never wear a mask there. And how will you answer? You know how I'm going to answer? I know somebody. I'm with your son. And it's in that moment when we turn not to, hey, look at my resume of everything that I did good on earth. It's not enough. It's who you know that gives you access to the place where you cannot as a sinner be. The holy of holies, the eternal presence of God forevermore. And the question is, is do you know the someone? Do you know Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life? Has there ever been a time in your life where you've trusted him as your savior? That is the most important question that you can answer this morning. Who do you know? If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, the question is, are you bearing fruit? What obstacles, distractions are getting in the way of love shining forth, joy shining forth, patience and goodness and gentleness and self-control. Another way to ask that question, follower of Jesus, is what does Jesus need to turn over in your life? What does he need to flip over in my life? What obstacles and distractions are we giving ourselves to that are ultimately limiting the access that our friends and family members have to see the beauty of the fruit of the Spirit in your life and in my life. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you this very morning and we realize through your word that you have made a way, that you've made a way that we as sinful human beings can come into a saving relationship with a holy God. We thank you that your son lived a perfect life that we cannot live. We, we know that so clearly. We feel our imperfection. We're acutely aware of the ways that, that we fail ourselves and at times fail those around us. And we're so thankful that in the midst of our imperfection, we can be in a saving relationship with perfection. With your son, who not only lived a perfect life, but died a saving death. And so today, we turn to your Son. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. We, we have no hope without Him. We have no way to penetrate the holiness of heaven without being in a saving relationship with Him. So we say thank you, God, for your Son.
and thank you that you give us, you give us the opportunity to be walking billboards for what you desire to do in a follower of Jesus' life. Our workplace needs love. The discourse of our society needs gentleness and patience and kindness. And it is so absent. And what a privilege you've given us to live now, to live in this very moment for such a time as this, to show the abundant harvest of a fruit-filled life, not of our doing, but of the Spirit of God in us. May this week be a week where we intimately follow you and the fruit of the Spirit beautifully is on display to those around us. We cannot do that in our own will. We oftentimes don't want to do that. We admit that and we cast all of our hope upon you. Help us to be the witnesses that you have called us to be. Forgive us when we fall so short. Stand us up this week and let us follow you faithfully. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.